Now, we've been going through John's Gospel for over a year now, and uh, although we still have eight and a half chapters to go, we have already reached Jesus' final words before his arrest and his death. It's known as the farewell discourse. And uh, Jesus' final words here are a little different to your average farewell discourse. He's joining a rich history of biblical characters who have given farewell discourses just as their deaths draw near. Jacob in Genesis 49, Moses in Deuteronomy, which is basically the whole thing, is basically a farewell discourse for Israel. Uh, then we have Joshua in Joshua chapters 22 to 24. We've got David in 1 Chronicles 28 through 29. And there are more. And so this isn't new. But to call Jesus' words a farewell discourse is kind of a bit misleading. These aren't his final, final remarks without us ever hearing from him again. He is about to die, but he anticipates that he will rise, return, and teach again. Yet, far more is given to these words than the 40 days he will spend with his followers between his resurrection from the dead and his ascension into the sky. These words are going to take us right up to the end of chapter 18. That's four and a half chapters. Then, in just one chapter, John will describe Jesus' arrest. And then, in the next, his death and his crucifixion. In the next chapter, he will describe Jesus' resurrection from the dead. And then John gives just one chapter to those final 40 days after his resurrection. It seems John gives this teaching before his arrest and crucifixion a lot of weight. Why is that? What is so important about what Jesus has to say in this moment that John gives so much to them? The answer is in the centrality of what is about to take place next to Jesus for all creation. It will be history's defining moment, crucial for every human being to ever live. Jesus Christ raised on a Roman cross is literally the crux of life. And we will see right there what it means to live for Jesus too. Jesus has already said that the hour has come as he approached Jerusalem and Israel was preparing for Passover. You maybe remember that moment back in chapter 12. But now the wheels are really set in motion because Judas has left the room. He's the, the he in verse 31, who was now on his way to the religious elites, scurrying, scheming, and willing to betray Jesus for cash. The cross looms ever closer. And... Jesus wants to both prepare his disciples for what they are about to see, and, but also to deposit teaching on the cross for when the church is born. Because it will define who we are as the church. 
In many ways, Jesus was always preparing the disciples for the cross. We have a picture that will come up in a moment, a painting, a pre-Raphaelite uh, Brotherhood painting from Holman Hoff, um, which I didn't know about, but was reading John Stott's The Cross of Christ, and in there he describes it. And the whole idea of this painting is to show that as Jesus was, wor- was uh, working a normal job as a carpenter, his life was always going somewhere. If you look at that close-up, you'll see that the shadow that's being cast on the workbench shows him in the crucifixion position. Jesus came to die. Jesus came to give his life for us. And right from the beginning, this has been the plan. It does not take him by surprise. But from chapters 14 through 17, we get an insight into Jesus' priority, his teachings on the cross for his disciples are to define who they're going to be. And he begins with two themes here in our passage, glory and love. Two subjects that we will discover are inseparable and vital to both our understanding of who God is and how the Christian life should be lived. We're going to see that the cross is the way to glory. Glory is a hard word. It's really hard to grasp it. Almost impossible to define. We, of course, have cheapened it. I'm pretty sure Lady Gaga wasn't on the edge of it. And that um, winning a sports trophy, no matter how much of a sport nut you may be, really doesn't cut it when you compare it to what the Bible is revealing on glory. It's supposed to be hard to grasp hold of. It's a glory that is above the heavens and the heavens declare. It's incomprehensible to sinners and yet fills the earth. It's what Moses was more desperate to see than anything else. It's what humbles the proud and causes us to fall face down when we're approached by it. It's something to be experienced when we encounter the presence of God. It's what we are all made to live for. And it's what the Bible says should be the motivation for everything that we do. It describes how magnificent God is. How awesome his power is. When he displays his glory to us, nothing compares. But when he does it, It can only be seen in tiny glimpses. For the glory of God is so wonderful it is always beyond our comprehension. There is always something behind it more to his glory. We see something of it and then there are layers and there are layers and there are layers, eternal layers of glory. The glory of God is indescribably and incomparably wonderful. And as we see here, glory is sourced in God alone. It flows from the eternal union of our God, Father, Son, and Spirit. 
As the cross approaches, the eternal plans of God are about to be brought to fruition. His promises fulfilled, his faithfulness and love that have been demonstrated in eternity past by the intrinsic nature of the Godhead are about to be displayed more clearly than ever. The cross, we can say, is a moment of glory because we see who God is. It's the greatest glimpse of glory the world has ever seen, and yet he doesn't line up an army of angels or give us a show of his incomparable power. Instead, Jesus breaks the curse of sin and death by becoming weak and dying in the place of those he loves. He bears the weight of the world's sin and absorbs God's justice and wrath that should have been directed at all of us who have made such a mess of this world in our own lives. The God who made it all and who cannot sin endured insufferable pain, the pain of a sinful world. Executed because he chose love. Now that's glory. Brilliant Scottish minister Robert Murray McShaney put it this way. The wounds of Christ were the greatest outlets of his glory that ever were. The divine glory shone more out of his wounds than out of all his life before. Now this isn't just God the Son glorifying God the Father on the cross by his perfect obedience. Notice that Jesus in verses 31 and 32 wants us to see that the glorification is two-way. The Son glorifies the Father and the Father glorifies the Son. The Father and the Son were fully united in atoning for our sin. Our triune God is glorified on the cross. And it is also a gateway to glory. Jesus will, re- he will return to glory, the glory of the Godhead through the cross. He's not going by any other way. This is the only way that he can return to his Father. Glory waits. The love of God that has been eternally, lavishly, and, and t- in a two-way, reciprocal way, poured out within the Godhead. And it is going to be fully and wonderfully restored. And in the intimate reconciliation of father and son, some footsteps can be heard running behind. Your footsteps. My footsteps. The disciples' footsteps. Sons and daughters united with Christ in death have died to their old lives with him and been raised to their new lives with him adopted and welcomed into the family of God. Do you see? At the cross, the floodgates of God's mercy opened up and God's love gushes towards us through the cross because we are wrapped up in the Son. That's why we are adopted. That's why we are called sons and daughters of God because we died with Christ on that cross. And now, one with him, we are welcomed into the Father's arms. 
The cross was the way to glory for Jesus, to return to the glory that has always rightfully been his, as Father, Son, and Spirit. But now we are wrapped up in the story of God, in the love of God through the cross. We have died with him and we have been raised with him, raised to glory and glory now in part, but that one day will be in full. The Welsh hymn writer puts it this way in one of my favourite ever hymns, Here is Love. On the mount of crucifixion, fountains open deep and wide, through the floodgates flowed a vast grace and love like mighty rivers poured incessant from above and heaven's peace and perfect justice kissed a guilty This is all really, really good news for us. And one of the reasons it's really good news is because the purpose of humanity, the meaning of your life, cannot be understood apart from glory. Humanity began in the glory of God, was separated through sin from it, and then God himself declares he will bring, Isaiah 43, my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth, every one of you who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory. This is why you were made. We are about to see how he is going to reunite or has now reunited us to our purpose to live to the glory of God. Back in chapter one, we saw that the coming of Jesus from heaven to earth is an appearing of glory. God's glory dwelling on the earth. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Since then, over a year ago, we should have been on the edge of our seats every week trying to discover more of how we can get a greater glimpse of this glory and give ourselves to it. The cross is the greatest glimpse we will get until he returns. This God in the flesh who is crucified on our behalf is raised up in glory and is the answer to all our questions about why we exist and what should govern our lives. The cross is the way to glory, but it is also the way to love. In the beginning of verse 33, Jesus addresses his disciples as my children. Bible commentators tell us this term is not formal, but it's one of tender affection. You could put it this way, my dearly loved children. He's about to be arrested, beaten, and slaughtered. And yet, you sense his genuine affection. Perhaps Jesus can see the reactions of the disciples as they get their heads around what is going on. I took my granny's funeral last week. She's a wonderful person. 
that we had been expecting to die for weeks, months even. And I mean, she was 95, right? There's a time to die. It wasn't a surprise, but we still shed a whole lot of tears. You can know something is coming for a long time, and yet when it actually happens, it still has a big impact. Jesus doesn't get the disciples ready like a 20th century drill sergeant, but with compassion and love. Jesus announces he has a new commandment. He looks at them in love, and he gives it to them. Now at first, it doesn't really seem like a new commandment. These guys had the law of Moses drummed into them. Especially the Shema from Deuteronomy 6. It's been the first commandment for thousands of years. And the command itself makes sure that they are familiar. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments that I give for you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. They would have been very familiar with those words. But there is something new here. Love one another just as I have loved you. That's, that's the difference. That's what's new. And how is that? How has Jesus loved the disciples? He will remind them later that evening. John 15, 9 through 10. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. And I remain in my love. Jesus loved as he was loved by the Father. The eternal glory of the Father, Son, and Spirit is held together by the eternal love of the Godhead. You see how these themes work together, glory and love? And just as God has dwelled in love, Jesus came to love with the same love. Jesus has come to gather us up in the eternal love of God. The Bible has always encouraged God's people to imitate God's loving ways, but here, the Word in the flesh, the cosmic King, who had humbled himself to wash their defiled feet like a Gentile slave, and who was about to go to a gruesome death on a Roman cross for us, is calling his followers to imitate his love. Think on what Jesus is asking. His love, the kind of love that is willing to suffer for the sake of the undeserving is to be imitated in our own little lives. And if it weren't blindingly obvious here, that means love and desire are not the same thing. Later, Jesus will be so confronted by what he is about to do, he will sweat drops of blood and beg with his father, is there another way? But Jesus says, not my will, or you might say desire, but yours be done. This is love. 
This is what we are supposed to imitate when we say that we want to love God and love people with all our hearts. We can't pull any punches here. This is abundantly clear. Jesus expects us to lay down our own lives to follow him in the ways of God's love. And that is what is to define the church. Jesus' followers are not to be recognized by the style of worship, the vibes at the coffee table, the techniques for evangelism or discipleship that we come up with, the type of church governance we have. It's the love of all its people. And that's a responsibility we all hold. And this love in the church is our greatest evangelistic weapon. It's how they will know we are his disciples, says Jesus. It's what will make us distinctly Christ-like. I know, church people can be really annoying. And that's just me. If I've not annoyed you yet, you probably don't know me that well. It can be a total inconvenience to you to have to prioritize your relationships in the church. Parkhead and Ibrox, days on Loch Lomond Shores, brunches on the south side, not so tempting in the west end, are often much more appealing. I know that asking for forgiveness is harder than just parking it and hoping that it goes away. Opening up a conversation about your own sin is blinking awkward. Or harder still in the life of someone else. Someone that I hope you would have a good relationship with in the church. Little side note. Giving generously to Jesus' church costs us. Costs us on what car we might have next. The next holiday, the next meal out. But... What we choose to do in all these moments has a defining impact on who we are as a church and how effective we are at displaying the love of Jesus to the world. That's what's at stake. That's what we're asking of one another. It's not because we're trying to build an organization. It's not because we want somehow to be famous among Christians. I mean, come on. What even is that? It's because surely we want Jesus to be known in this city and across this nation again. And we have no idea. Open Doors, a Christian charity founded by the Bible smuggler brother, brother Andrew, support the persecuted church around the world and have an event coming up in March. And the guest is a woman from Malaysia who's going to be sharing about persecution there, including her story of how her husband was taken away for sharing the good news of Jesus seven years ago and hasn't been seen since. That is a common story around the world. There are people in this room who know people who have been persecuted in other nations who have been beaten and arrested. What is fascinating, though, 
is that where Christians are suffering for the sake of the gospel, we are seeing more church growth than anywhere else. Imagine this 50 or, uh, 40 or 50 years ago. The four countries where Christianity is growing most quickly are Saudi Arabia, the UAE, China, and fastest of all, Nepal. In China, the annual average growth rate is 10.8%, and recently the number of Christians in China has surpassed the number of Christians that there are in the United States. If we want to reach the world, we need to make some hard, sacrificial, loving choices. Our brothers and sisters in those countries are showing us the way. We might put out books, we might have fancy looking services that we stream online, but they're really leading the way. John Stott in The Cross of Christ said, the greatest single secret of evangelistic or missionary effectiveness is the willingness to suffer and die. It may be a death to popularity by faithfully preaching the unpopular biblical gospel or to pride by the use of modest methods and reliance on the Holy Spirit or to racial and national prejudice by identification to another culture or to material comfort by adopting a simple lifestyle. But the servant must suffer if he is to bring light to the nations and the seed must die if it is to multiply. We want to be a church that represents the diversity we'll see in the new creation. Socioeconomic diversity, racial diversity. We want to see all kinds of people united in love in this place. And I am glad to say that we are beginning to see more and more of it. But we must be conscious of it, aware of it, active in it. Help one another to do it. Now you've probably worked it out by now, but the way to glory is the way of love. Peter's reaction to what is going on is passion. He wants to do something. He is a person of action and he wanted to imitate Jesus immediately. immediately. Verse 37, Lord, I'm ready. I'm willing to die for you. He thinks he can be a hero. But Jesus says he isn't ready yet, even comparing him to the religious elites and the others, the religious elites, the Jews, who thought they knew how to be heroes. But Peter still says, no, Lord, I am. I, I will lay down my life for you. Very truly, I tell you, before the rooster crows three times, you will deny me three times. We all like to think of ourselves as heroes, to be thought of well. We might have noble intentions, but here's the lesson. Jesus is our only true hero. The only one who can really save us. Peter doesn't realise it, but the pride in him that causes this confident outburst, I'll die for you, is the same pride that will cause him to be ashamed to stand with Jesus in a different setting. Jesus is the only hero we need, and I think Peter realises it after he hears the crow. And the rooster, not a crow.
In Luke's Gospel, we read that Jesus turned and looked straight at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word of the Lord had been spoken to him. Before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. I don't think that that look was disappointment or condemnation. I think it was compassion. I think it was love. I think it was the same way Jesus looked when he turned to his disciples and said, my children. There and then, Peter realizes he's not the hero. Only Jesus is. To live out this love that leads to glory, to a life with God, we must stop trying to prove ourselves and instead look to Christ. He is looking on you, not waiting for you to be a hero, but to surrender to his love. The way to a self-sacrificing life of love and to enter into glory is nothing short of dying to pride and humbly accepting the heroism of Christ. To relent. Stop trying so hard and be loved. About 30 years later, Peter would, be, would put it like this in his letter to the churches of the diaspora across modern-day Iraq. To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. The way to glory, to our purpose, to our eternal happiness is the way of love, the way of the cross. And it begins by laying ourselves down and accepting the love of Christ.